Well, good morning. Uh, it is a privilege for me to be here as well. Uh, G pastor Gino is not just a pastor that I know. He's a confidant. He is a friend of mine. He is a mentor in some areas. And he's also uh, going to help us. We, we're planning on having arranged marriages with our kids down the road. So if any of you all were looking at Eli as a prospect, he's off the table. Uh, we're claiming him. Uh, and he, uh, he's going to be at Freedom Church on Father's Day. I hope he told you that, Shannon. Uh, otherwise, uh, surprise. And so if you want to hear a good message at Freedom, come on Father's Day, okay? So it, it's just a good fellowship, and it's good to be here at the South Suburban Vineyard Church. And church planting is a hard work. And I've learned so much from just our conversation. So it's good to be here. Well, um, if you don't mind, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 4. And I'm going to jump into my assignment. And I hope you guys don't mind. This feels like family, so I'm going to act like family. And in our, in our tradition, whenever we read the word, we do this thing of standing. I know you guys don't do that, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me just for today. Okay? This also is such a large piece of text that if you were sitting, you might fall asleep. So stand with me. 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Uh, and if you did not bring your Bible, you can always look on with a real Christian. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And it says this in verse 1, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Wait, did I get that right? At that time, what, 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 uh, what translation is that? NLT. NLT, okay, all right. You know what? I'm actually reading from the NIV. So it's going to sound the same, but a little bit different. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines, and the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? That's always a good question when you're losing a war. Why did God bring this defeat on us? And so they said, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And mind you, these are Eli's wicked sons that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 2. And it says, when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. They were excited about this. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And they look at each other and they say, be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great and Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers that day. 
And the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And that same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told him what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and said, what is the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli said, what happened, my son? And the man who brought the news said, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And it's interesting that it says when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell back. His, both of his sons are dead. But once he hears about the ark, he falls over backwards off his chair by the side of his gate. His neck is broken and he dies for he was an old man and he was heavy and he led Israel for 40 years. And his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the woman attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son, but she didn't respond or pay any attention, she named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in all of our lives. And we thank you for your manifest presence with us. Wake us up to the reality of your presence this day. Let us not be the people. The Holy Spirit is the most ignored person on the face of the earth. But teach us, God, the weightiness of your presence. Bless us today, God. Be with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Let everyone say amen. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and be seated in the presence of the Lord. Uh, 4 verse 1 is really the concluding remark of chapter 3. The word of Samuel, you can't read this chapter without realizing that the word of Samuel is God's gift to the people of Israel. He's raising up a new leader in the nation of Israel. But they stop talking about Samuel in chapter 4. They, they, it's just, you don't hear any more of this great prophetic person who was born hand, to a barren mom, this miracle birth. His mom takes him over to Eli, leaves him at the temple and says, dedicate him to the work of the Lord. As a young man, he hears the word of the Lord. You all remember that? Samuel, who, who is it calling? Samuel. You know, th- this is just a, a legacy that's coming forward from this pr- prophet of God. But when it gets to chapter four, it's almost like the word of the Lord was coming through Samuel, but we have to deal with something before we can talk about that because he's been the primary focus for the first three chapters, and now there is a silence. And the writer of 1 Samuel is telling us something that before he talks to us about the new spiritual leadership that is coming in, you have to eliminate the old bad spiritual leadership first. He wants to teach us a lesson about his presence before the people, so that the people can come to a place of repentance and really walk in the blessing of this new leadership of Samuel. And if you wanted to bracket chapter 4 up into two sections, 
Verses 1 through 11 are really just reporting uh, this battle with the Philistines that's going on between Israel and the Philistines, and it ends with the deaths, two deaths of Hophni and Phinehas, which is important because there were a lot of people that died in Israel that day. But they want us to know that the two people you need to be thinking about is Hophni and Phinehas. Look at someone and say, Hophni and Phinehas. The second section is how they take the news of the battle and give it to Eli and give it to the people back home. And and you feel this pathos and the weightiness that is happening back home in Israel. But before we start moving down this chapter, I want to remind this church of something. The main actor in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is not Samuel, it's not Eli, it's not Hophni and Phinehas, it's not, you know, Ichabod, it's not, not, the main actor in every single piece of scripture is who? God. See, I knew, I I haven't even, I didn't even have to, I know Gino well enough that there were going to be a group of people that that were going to get that right. God is always the main actor. But if, if you were to ask yourself, what's the next main piece that we should be focusing on past God, I would suggest to you that it's this. It's the Ark of the Covenant. See, Israel, they go off to battle with these Philistines. They begin to march off into battle. And in the first battle, they lose 4,000 men. That's a bad day. 4,000 that's 9-11. You know, this is not a good day. They lost 4,000 men, and they come home to regroup, and, and they come back, and they say, we are, look at the ark. God's throne is with us, and we went out to fight, and 4,000 people are dead. What happened? And one of the elders of the community says one of the most wise things in all of chapter 4. He says, why did Yahweh bring defeat on us today? Why did God do this to us? Because in Israel, they had a history of God defeating their foes. They had an understanding of God that God is always the one doing the fighting. Not them. See, when, when, if you read through the book of Joshua, you, it'll become very clear that the people are, are sort of a side note in the whole battle. It starts off with Jericho. You know, they're walking around the wall and boom, everything. You know, it, the idea is that God is always the one fighting. So just like after Jericho, when God said, bring all the goods to me, you had the one guy in the camp, Achan, who took some stuff, you know, he took some gold and took some clothes and hid it in his tent. And then after that mighty battle at Jericho, they go to fight this weak army at Ai. And they start losing. And then Joshua, this great leader, is on his knees before God. Like, why are we losing? God, you said this. He's bowed down. And God is like, hey, hey, man, man, stop, you know, stand up. If you get the sin out of the camp, the battle is the Lord's. So they go over and kill Achan, stone him and his family. I'm just saying this Old Testament is fine. <laughs> and then they go to fight again, and they're winning. So when they're losing against these Philist, uncircumcised Philistines in 1 Samuel 4, someone says, why is the Lord doing this? Why are we losing this battle. And all Israel had to do is remember the covenant. 
Remember Leviticus when what God said to us? Leviticus 26 says this in verse 14 through 17. If you don't listen to me and don't carry out my commands, if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws, fail to carry out my commands, violate my covenants, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting disease and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You'll plant a seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even if no one is pursuing you. All they had to do was remember the covenant. Remember what God said. So here's the wisdom. And this is it. And I'm closing right now. This is the wisdom. Gino said I had eight minutes. In chapter 2, they all knew that Hophni and Phinehas, they were sleeping with the women that were serving at the temple. When people would come to bring an offering, the the idea was you brought this meat and you put it in this boiling pot and then those priests would stab into the pot of that boiled meat and take some of it out and whatever they got out would have been their lot. But that wasn't what they were doing. They would bring the meat and Hophni and Phinehas and says, hold on, let me get a ribeye cut first with the fat on it and all the good stuff and I'll set that aside and now you can do your offering to God. They were so wicked. The whole town knew how wicked Eli's boys were. They were all wicked. And all they had to do was repent and remove the wickedness from the camp. Get the sin out of the camp. All of Israel knew that if Hophni and Phinehas were gone, the Philistines would be no match. Have have you ever been at a place where you realize what it is in your life that is grieving God and you just ignore it? Like, like it just doesn't exist? I think this is the human condition, isn't it? Every person here under the sound of my voice knows what their struggle is. You, you know, James, you and your own evil desire. We all, we all know what our struggle, you don't need a prophet to come along and say, oh, you are struggling with lust. It's like, no, you already know that, R- right? Jacob, he was a trickster, a supplanter. There's something that always, there's sort of like these characteristic sins that define people. And we know what's grieving God, but we just... Have you ever asked yourself, what is it that defines you? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it anger, resentment, unforgiveness? I mean, we already know. It's not that we don't know in our life what it is that's grieving God. It's just that we choose to ignore it. Can I get an amen? Okay, fine. You all aren't going to talk to me. You don't have to talk to me. That's just conviction. So here's what they did. And this is This is genius. This is, this is amazing. They came up with a way where they didn't have to repent or get rid of the sin in the camp, and still they could get God to do their bidding. I need to know that word. How can I stay in my mess and still make God work for me? 
this is a good message. Somebody should have been clapping at that point. They probably remembered the Battle of Jericho when the ark is the central piece as it's parading around this town. And God is going to win the battle because of his property, because of his ark. He, this ark matters to God. So let us take the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh into the Philistine camp, and God will save us from our enemies. Because the Ark is so sacred, right? It's this gold-covered box that's, you know, th- four feet long by three feet wide. And most of the time, if they, unless they were walking through the wilderness, the Ark sat in this sort of, in the center of Israel's worship center in what they would call the, the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. How many people have heard of the Ark of the Covenant before? Uh, in Exodus 25, God gave them instructions how to build this Ark. And he says, I'm going to meet with you where that ark is located, and I'm going to give you my commands. And, and the picture that you get from Exodus is that the ark of the covenant is literally the throne of God in the earth. It's like, it's like his place of where he rules people. It's his rulership. You know, there's this, this ark and there's these cherubim that are coming out on both sides of like the throne, and he's ruling from there. And it wasn't just the place of his rulership. It was the place of his revelation. God said to Moses, I'm going to speak to you and give you direction from that ark of the covenant. And that covenant held the Ten Commandments that he got from the mountaintop on high. You know, it wasn't just the place of rulership and revelation but it was also a place of reconciliation. So once a year, the priests would come in with the blood of lambs and bulls, and they would sprinkle that blood on the top of the ark, which was called the mercy seat, and that would cover over and atone for all the sins of all the people. And it was where God led. And whenever they would go out in battle, like in Numbers uh, chapter 10, this is what the Lord says. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. So whenever it came to, to rest back in its spot, it says, return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. So you get the picture that whenever the ark moves, the throne of God is moving amongst the people. Imagine the imagery of this, you know, The throne of God will bring that into battle and the Philistines don't have a shot. See, here's their assumption. If we bring the ark to battle, Yahweh will be forced to deliver us to protect his honor, to protect his great name. And if something happens To the ark, God then loses. And there is no way that God will lose. He will have to save us in order to protect his own honor. Mm. Have you ever tried to leverage God? Have you ever placed pressure on God to perform? Their ace in the hole, the ark of the cup, God's furniture, the seat of his power. Have you ever twisted the arm of God? 
How do you know when you're leveraging God? When you're, you're not looking to seek God, you're looking to control him. When you're, you might have brought an ark. When you're, when you're not looking to submit yourself to God, but you're looking to use God, you might have brought an ark. When you prefer a religious formula over personal holiness, you might have brought an ark. When you're more interested in success than in repentance, you might have brought an ark. Touch someone and say, did you bring an ark today? (laughs) Not the person you have issues with in the church. Not your spouse. It's not that type of party. So they bring the ark, and the shouting is so loud that the Bible says the ground shook. They are so hyped. I I want you to know that all because something is hype, all because everyone is excited about something, all because you're riled up about something, doesn't mean that God is riled up there right with you. You know, Easter Sunday for all of us is like, hallelujah! You know, I only give church attendance numbers on Easter Sunday. That is the benchmark of our whole year. That is our only, I don't take numbers any other day. And it feels exciting, right? Every seat is filled. Whoa, the Lord. But is, ah, never mind. I'm meddling now. Let's not talk about that. God might not be concerned, as concerned as we are, as how many people are in this house shouting. He might be more concerned with the heart condition of those that are here. You know? Submitting to Christ or leveraging God. The Philistines, when they heard the shout of the camp of Israel, they look at each other and they say, we need to man up. The gods are in the camp. They're going to kill us if we don't fight. And we're going to be their slaves just like they were our slaves. And they fought even harder and they struck down all of the Israelites and everyone fled back to their tents. And in verse 11, the ark of God was captured. This might be the lowest moment in all of the Old Testament. It's definitely the worst thing that has happened to Israel since they've left Egypt. The Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, the box that matters where he rules and reigns, was taken. Not only was Israel completely defeated, 34,000 people dead that day, God was defeated. God lost. God was overtaken. God is not the victorious one. He is a loser. Wait, hold on. That's not in my notes. Oh, it is there. I'm sorry. I guess I'm going to have to roll with it then. See, the que- what is the question that this text forces on us? Why would God choose to lose And what does that explain to us about the God we serve and the God we worship? Why would God choose to lose? Well, if you're writing down notes and you want a principle to take home, here it is. God would rather suffer shame than to ever let you think you are running him. 
And he will always allow your disappointment in him if it will open your eyes to the type of God he really is. Let me unpack that for a moment. I remember uh, when I was in high school and uh, my father was a black man from the south side of Chicago and my mom was a white lady from a Methodist pastor. How they ended up together, I don't know, especially at that time. And my dad, you know, they, he was a military guy and all, everybody called him the general. We used to always have bad kids in our home growing up. He just didn't, he just didn't play, you know. I still have the marks on my body. No, I'm just kidding. But I do. I'm just saying, I, that's a real true story. I don't know. You know, we don't do spanking anymore, I understand. But um, anyways, I was on punishment. And, and I was, you know, in high school, and there was a Friday night event at the church, and all of my friends were going to be there. And this is a church event. And it was a good church event where maybe I would find Jesus and all these other great things. And the plans were set, and I was going to take my folks' car and go to this church event, and it was just a church thing. And mom really wanted me to be in church. Even though I was on punishment, it was still a church event. I needed to be there. And so Friday night rolls around. I say, hey, I got to go to this church event, church event, and so I need to use the car tonight. And he said, you have made all of these plans And somewhere in your thinking, you just assumed I was going to let you take the car when you know your behind is on punishment. Those are the words he would use. I'm not saying, I'm just quoting right now. And then my mom walks in and she begins to give him the speech. You know, you know, people are going to be there. It's a church event. It's going to be really good for him. He might grow in the Lord, and it's just going to be a great time for them. And you know, what are people going to, I mean, and I'm sitting back and I'm enjoying this. You know, I'm let, my mom is letting him know of the disappointment that's going to happen from all of these church folk because you're not letting your son go to this good event. And this is a great event. And I figured out a way in my teenage mind to bypass my father's authority and leverage him to get what I needed. His back is against the wall. I got him. I got him. Because if he does not let me go to the good church event, all of those good church folk are going to be wondering, what kind of a father is that? He's going to have to suffer the shame of that. And if you knew my dad, what he said is, I don't care what anybody thinks. You not running me. You are going to stay at home tonight. Because my dad was the type of person that would rather suffer shame than to ever let a child think that he's running him. Do I have any witnesses in the building? He would rather allow even my own disappointment in him if it would open my eyes to the kind of dad he really is. See, in ancient Israel, God says, I don't care what the cost is to my personal reputation. I would rather my most important piece of furniture be taken and my people be destroyed and my name drugged through the mud before anybody ever manipulates and plays me. You are not running God. 
We need to seek his face, not seek to control him. We need to submit to him, not use him. Not religious formulas, but personal holiness. Not success in your life, but repentance in your heart. The usefulness of God should never usurp the worthiness of God. And if it does, you might have brought an ark. Now, I want to close with a few thoughts, because I've left you, and Gina will never invite me back after I said, God is losing. He's a loser. He took an L. But I want, I want to close with a thought, and I want you to just look at someone and say, isn't it ironic? You know, when I was in high school, I think that, that may have came out when I was in high school. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? I see was in the back, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know all the words, but. I want to talk to you about irony in closing. They send to Shiloh to requisition the ark. And the writer notes that the ark was in the care of Hophni and Phinehas. It's important because naturally the people that are looking over the ark are going to accompany the ark, correct? So when the writer summarizes the battle in verse 11, he says, oh, and by the way, Hophni and Phinehas died. There's an emphasis. All of the people died in Israel, but he wants us to know, by the way, Hophni and Phinehas died. Anyone reading this would see the fulfillment from chapter 2, verse 25, and the threat in chapter 2, verse 34. I'll read it for you. After God exposes, they exposed all the sinfulness in the camp, God says, Hophni, and what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. That was the judgment of God coming on that home. So here's the irony. Israel is bringing the ark as their key to victory, but God is using that to carry out his purpose to put Hophni and Phinehas to death. Isn't it ironic but the irony gets deeper than that. Everyone surrounding knows one thing. The Philistines are laughing. God is defeated. God is a loser. God is suffering shame. See, on this day, the ark gets taken. Hophni and Phinehas get killed. So in the moment in our minds where it seems that God is being dishonored, that very moment when we think God is being dishonored and God is losing is actually the very moment that God was beginning to protect his honor and restore it. There might be some talks about God over in Philistine country. Look at the ark. And God deals with that in a few more chapters. But back in Shiloh, God is no longer despised. He's no longer despised by those Israelites. See, we can miss the point of the story if we, if we, if we can just overlook the bloodshed of 34,000 Israelites and look past the ark that was being taken and look past Yahweh's negative reputation. What we see in this passage is that this is the moment where God is actually fulfilling his word from chapter 2. 
His judgment on the people is removing the wicked ministers, and his grace in chapter 4, verse 1, is giving the people Samuel so that the voice of the Lord can go forth. So this story ends in the house of Eli. And you see an old man who was heavy sitting outside on his rocking chair and by the side of the road, and he's almost blind at this point, a very heavy older man sitting almost blind. His heart is heavy. There's no telling what is going to happen, but he knows that his home is under the judgment of the Lord. And he hears people running to him, and he's just waiting there. And he hears this commotion, and he said, what happened? And Israel fled, and people were slaughtered. Your sons are dead, and the ark has been captured. See, Eli was more concerned about the ark than even the loss of his own kids. And this was a man of faith. Eli was a man of God. That's a whole other story about how his kids ended up so messed up. But imagine thinking I was the priest of the Lord over the house of Israel when the ark was taken. And the weight of this is overwhelming, and he falls over, and he dies. And then Phineas's wife was pregnant, and she hears the news about this. And this, the painfulness and the weightiness of this news puts her into early labor and, 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 and childbirth. And she gives birth, and, and her final words are an indicator of this truth. She names her son Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed, or the glory has gone into exile from Israel. And one writer says it this way, the glory of God did indeed depart, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had already departed. And if you want another principle in closing, sometimes God has to depart from people in order for them to seek him rightly. You know, that's the testimony of many of us, isn't it? God allowed just enough to happen in your life and in your situation where at some point you woke up and you said, I got to do something different. Is that a testimony of anyone? Sometimes it is his kindness that brings us to repentance, but then there's other times. Many people turn to God in a trial or a circumstance or an instance where you say, God, I need your help. That was my testimony. I need God. If you're real, show up, help But this text is showing us one last principle. Eli was more grieved over the fact of the presence of God being gone than even the death of his sons. Phineas' wife was more grieved over the ark. The The Bible is trying to say the greatest tragedy in any of our lives is the loss of his presence. Thank you. That was the baby in the back. She was like, yes. Now, don't get me wrong. We are the people of God living after the resurrection of the Lord, and we have the promised Holy Spirit dwelling in us, with us. He is with us. We don't necessarily lose his presence, but isn't it possible that we can turn our hearts from him? to ignore him, pretend that he doesn't exist. I want to close with a story about his presence, and I'm going to ask the worship team if they want to just start making their way up. About three years ago on uh, Valentine's Day, my wife, who's here today, so awesome, so wonderful, um, we went up 
to a, a show on the north side for Valentine's Day. And we, I pastored a church on the north side of Chicago for five years. It was a, in Albany Park. It was a, primarily a Latino congregation. And uh, see, when you're mixed, no one knows what you are. <laughs> so you could go, I was like, oh, size, oh, yeah. Jesucristo es mi vida. You know, it's a, I just roll with it, you know. Anyways, the traffic is always terrible. I'm so glad I'm in the south suburbs now, just for that one fact alone. Um, but we were in the slowest traffic ever, driving down 94. And as we're, we're plugging along, all of a sudden, there, the lane on the left just opens up. Like, like a wave, and I thought, I should just pull over there and just jump into this, and then I look back and I see flashing lights. And it was a, 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 a cavalry, it was just like an army of cars, and they were Cadillac limos, you know, like just the like tanks coming up. And then the lights, and here I am in this slow lane of traffic, and it was like car after car. There had to be about 30 cars in total. And in the back, it was like a paddy wagon. Who knows what they had in that car? But they were ready to start a war if it was going to go down. It just so happened that President Obama was in Chicago on that night. And he was, he was driving past us in the left lane. And I realized something in my car that I had been about 15 feet away from the most powerful person in the U.S., that's a thought. I mean, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm in the furthest lane and they're driving past me. I'm 15 feet away from the most powerful person in the country. And all of a sudden, some, we just felt like something special happened to us. You know, I mean, I'm not saying I'm like spooked or nothing, but it was like, wow, something, we were just next to power. And amazing, we were graced at a short distance. And I did what anybody would do. I start calling people. You're not going to believe this. <laughs> the president drove past us just randomly. No, this just happened. It was crazy. It was a good, I just don't know the, oh, it's just so interesting. My heart was filled with wonder because power and authority and greatness kind of passed by me. But I came here today to remind you that someone greater than the president is constantly passing through these aisles, constantly passing through your homes, constantly sitting next to you in your car, constantly there at your bedside when you wake up. He's there, and he's moving in our heart and in this place, and he's always passing through, reminding you of his nature, that he's awesome, that he can move the mountains. When was the last time God passed by and you had to call someone? You're not going to believe what happened to me today. Who, what, did the president walk by? No, it was someone greater. They call him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, my provider, my healer, my sustainer, my strength. He's the one who's walking by you today. 
And if we sit back and we ignore his presence, his awesome presence, then Ichabod is written over our own doors. See, that's the goal of Pastor Gino, myself, the other ministers, David. Their goal is to constantly remind us of the true greatness that is always passing through. He's here. Lord, I pray that your glory will never depart from this house. Let us be reminded of his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here today. Lord, your glory is with us. Remind every person under the sound of my voice that the spirit of the living God is is trancing and just walking through. Lord, I just pray right now, I'm just seeing, God, that as, as a king would walk in, the train of your robe is just flowing through this place. Even as the woman ran up to you and grabbed your garment, God, and healing flowed out, God. Lord, remind us that we're not here just lifting hands and prostrate before just a group of people, but we're here before the one and only main actor of this church. Lord, let your glory never depart from us, I pray today. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.